Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. It's my pleasure to, to welcome you here this morning. Thank you for taking the time this morning to join us in this way. <clears throat> now, we're just a few weeks into this new sermon series that we're, uh, where we're journeying through the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 11. We're exploring together uh, what the author of the book of Hebrews has to say to us by way of these various stories that he's putting before us in this chapter. This week's story of faith you'll find in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And so head over in that direction if you're not already there. You may also want to hold your spot in Genesis chapter 5. We'll be spending a fair amount of time there as well. You just heard both of those pertinent passages uh, read for you just a moment ago by our friend Jesse. Now, if you're a sports fan at all, you'll be familiar with the fact that with most professional sports teams, they have what is called the Hall of Fame. Now, the Hall of Fame is a very special place where the greatest and most successful individuals to have played a particular sport are remembered and, and honored and in many ways celebrated. And for Christians, Hebrews chapter 11 and all the individuals, all the stories we'll be considering this week and last week and in the coming weeks, you see, Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to not as the hall of fame, but of, as the, the hall of faith. And it's referred to as the hall of faith because it puts before us various uh, characters from the Old Testament. And it puts them before us as illustrations, really, of the types of faith and the types of lives that are commended by God, that are, that are pleasing to God, and that are to be examples, really, for us uh, to look at and to be encouraged by and, and to emulate. And as we move through Hebrews chapter 11, if you haven't already taken notice of this, you will very quickly uh, begin to see a certain pattern in the way that the author is presenting these stories of faith to us. Each and every time a new character is introduced, each time a new case study is put before uh, the reader, what you're going to see is that, is that it begins with the same two words each time. Each new story in Hebrews chapter 11 begins with the words, by faith. Last week, we saw that by faith, Abel did something. He, by faith, he, he believed God, he, he trusted God, and he made an offering to God on that basis. And so by faith, Abel offered something. Later, we'll see that by faith, Abraham obeyed. We'll see that by faith, Noah built We'll see that by faith, uh, Moses left. He left Egypt. And that's the pattern we're going to see again and again each week, that, that men and women of God, by faith, they did something. They took action as a result of their faith in God and as a result of what he had revealed to them. And that's the pattern we're going to see each and every week in this study, with the exception of this week as we look at the life and the faith of this man named Enoch. You see, whereas every other biblical character we're going to come across in Hebrews chapter 11 did something by faith, we're going to see that with Enoch, rather than Enoch doing something for God by faith, we're going to see instead God doing something for Enoch and to Enoch because of his faith. Something quite remarkable, in fact, was done to Enoch by God because of his faith. And what God did to Enoch and why he did it has something profound to say to us today about our own faith 
and about our God, too. But first things first, who is this Enoch anyways, and what do we know about him? The truth is, we do not know much. There are only three verses about him in the entire Old Testament. And nevertheless, the author of the book of Hebrews holds up this man as an example of faith for you and I, and for every Christian, in fact, to consider. And so let's see what we can glean this morning about why that is, and about what happened with this man named Enoch. We're introduced to Enoch in the Old Testament for the very first time, and also for the very last time in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, in the passage you just heard a few minutes ago. But what you wouldn't necessarily know from just listening to those three verses is that Enoch is listed in chapter 5 of Genesis as just one of many, many names within a genealogy. In fact, all of Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy. It's the first genealogy recorded in the Bible, and it's there and only there that we meet this man named Enoch. And if you're a student of the Bible, you'll know that there are many other genealogies recorded in the Bible. And quite often, at first glance, they can seem pretty dry. They can uh, seem pretty uninteresting. It's easy to kind of move through them rather quickly when you do come across them. But as we always need to do, we need to step back a bit from the specific passages, passage that we're studying, and we need to take a look at what's going on around that passage that we're studying We need to consider every passage in light of its surrounding context. And as we do that here, we find that these three verses in Genesis chapter 5, they have far more to communicate to us than the casual reader might realize at first glance. One of the things that we can draw out of this passage and this chapter in the book of Genesis as we step back in this way is that Enoch was a man who lived in the various in the very earliest days of human existence in a fallen world. Chapter 5 tells us that Enoch was seventh from Adam. He was seven generations from Adam. And so what this means is that we're talking about human culture and human society at its very earliest stage. And things were not going well at all at that time. If you've been with us for a little while here at the Hallows Church, you'll know from our recent study of Genesis chapters 1 to 3 that that in the beginning, everything was good. In the beginning, everything was very good. Man and woman in the Garden of Eden, walking in fellowship with God, walking in fellowship with uh, one another, enjoying his creation. There was perfect harmony. There was perfect peace. There was perfect uh, communion with God. No sin, no suffering, no death. But then in Genesis chapter 3, things went bad. Things went very bad very quickly as sin infected the human heart. And as our fellowship with our God was fractured by our own doing. But even though our relationship with God was fractured as a result of sin, God displayed his mercy and grace from the very beginning by allowing human beings to continue in spite of their sin and in spite of their rebellion against him. Indeed, we see in Genesis chapter 5 in this genealogy that, that in spite of sin, human beings were proliferating and spreading across the earth. But while human beings were proliferating and spreading across the earth, sin and evil were doing the very same thing at the very same time. 
In fact, it did not take long at all after Genesis chapter 3 for us to see some of the fallout of sin. It did not take long at all for us to see uh, lying and cheating and denial and adultery and murder as sin corrupted the human heart and as it began to ravage the, the human condition. Things were so bad in these earliest of days. We're told in Genesis chapter 6 that, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created for I am sorry that I have made them. And so that didn't take long, did it? Just three short chapters after Adam and Eve chose to disregard God's word and do things their own way, we see that the sinful state of the human heart was seemingly irretrievable. The human heart had been overtaken by darkness. The future of humanity looked bleak. God was greatly grieved in his heart, and he said, essentially, enough is enough. A great judgment is coming. And so that's the picture that is painted for us as we, as we move through the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And after all the beauty and the hope that we saw in the creation account of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 uh, several months back, it's hard not to feel your heart and your hope sinking as you read through Genesis chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. Sin was spreading Judgment was coming, and there was nothing at all that any human being could do about it. And it is in that time and in that place that Enoch dwelt on this earth. But not only was sin spreading, the, the wages of sin, which is death, was, was rearing its head as well and beginning to exert its domination over mankind in these earliest of days. For every person listed in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 after giving their name and after talking about their offspring, after talking about how long they lived, each time it says, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Genesis chapter 5 confronts the reader of the Bible for the first time in the Bible with the reality of death in a fallen world as a result of sin. But then, very interestingly, as you're reading along in this genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, if you're paying close attention, you come across something that's entirely unexpected. You come across something quite startling, in fact, in this genealogy when it comes to this man named Enoch. You see, whereas for every other person listed in this genealogy, it says, and then he died, and then he died. When you get to Enoch in verse 24, it doesn't say that at all. Rather, it says that God took him. God took Enoch. The author of Hebrews sheds some additional light on this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, when he says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. God took him. God took him up so that he would not experience death. And that word translated as taken up can also mean transferred as if being moved from one place to another. And so God transferred Enoch from life on this earth directly into his presence, bypassing death altogether. 
And so right in the middle of Genesis chapter 5, quite subtly so, the pattern of this genealogy and the pattern of death, really, that is being presented to us in this genealogy, it's, it's interrupted. The pattern is broken in a most striking way. God took Enoch, he took him up so that he would not see death. And friends, this is a fascinating scene. It's a fascinating situation. We were told that God was greatly grieved at the state of the human heart and where humanity seemed to be headed to the point of announcing his coming judgment against them, all the while, at the very same time, giving his people a glimmer of hope that somehow, some way, it was still possible in spite of sin to, to walk with God and even to bypass the curse that is death. This is what this passage is saying to us by way of this man named Enoch. The Bible is remarkable in this way. This is God in the opening chapters of his inspired uh, scripture speaking to us an ever so subtle whisper about the future, saying to each one of us from the very beginning that in spite of sin, it would nevertheless be possible somehow for men and women to leave this world in right relationship with their God and that death would not have the final say after all, rather God would. But why Enoch? What did Enoch do that was so special? We're given one of the reasons right here in the text. We're told in Genesis chapter 5 that Enoch walked with God. For all of his life, in fact, we're told, following the birth of his son, we're told that Enoch walked with God. And so let's talk about that. Let's explore that a bit. The very first time the word walk shows up in the Bible is in the opening chapters of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, in fact, where we find God himself taking a walk. We see God taking a stroll in the garden, in the cool of the day, we're told. You see, from the very beginning, we were designed to, to take walks with God, to be, to be walking partners with him, to be in a walking relationship with him. God says this much through his prophet Micah in chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, What does the Lord ask of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? God desires to walk with his people. And there's perhaps no better way to get to know someone, to, to grow close, closer to them, to, uh, to deepen your friendship with them, than to walk with them. Friends, can you imagine God showing up and saying, let's take a walk, let's go for a walk. I want to hear what's on your heart. I want to tell you what's on mine. I want to spend time with you in that way, so let's go. Can you imagine God saying that to you? Friends, I hope that you can imagine God saying that to you because it's, that's exactly what he's saying to you in the gospel. He's inviting you in. He's saying, I've created you for this. Come and walk with me. Let's do this together. But I'd like to ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you accepted his offer? Are you walking with him today? Now you may say, I'm not sure. How do I know if I'm walking with him? What does that mean? How do I do that? And I think Hebrews chapter 11 helps out a bit on that front. It really sheds some helpful light, I think, on what we're told about Enoch and about his walk with God. And one of the things that we learn from this about walking uh, with God is that, is that walking with God, first and foremost, 
at its very core. It's an act of faith. Even though faith is not mentioned anywhere in Genesis chapter 5 when it talks about Enoch, we know that it was Enoch's faith that, that led God to do what he did. The author of Hebrews makes that clear for us. We're told in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11 that without faith it is impossible to please God. We're also told there in that same passage that Enoch pleased God, and so Enoch was indeed walking with God by faith. Enoch was walking with God not because of who he was or what he did, not because of his status or his reputation, not by trying harder or doing more or measuring up. Rather, by his faith he walked with God, by his trust in the character and the promises of God that had been revealed to him. Another thing we see is that walking with God not only requires faith, I think it also requires a very clear uh, surrender and, and submission on our part. In every way, a life of walking with God is a surrendered life. Think about this. To walk with someone assumes, really, that there uh, is no hostility between them, right? That they are on agreeable terms at some level, or why would they be walking together in the first place? And so you cannot walk with God unless you have peace with God. And there is no peace with God unless the enmity between you and God is removed. And the enmity between you and God can never be removed without you seeing clearly that, that in order for you to ever begin walking with God, you need to acknowledge that you are not worthy of walking with God on your own. You need Jesus for that. What this means is that if you are ever to walk with God, this requires on your part a humble acknowledgement of your treason against him, and it requires an honest confession that you, that you need help, but that you cannot help yourself. This means looking around at the state of the world. It means looking within at the state of your own heart and, and acknowledging that you and I are desperately broken sinners in desperate need of grace. Another thing we see here is that to walk with God not only requires that we acknowledge our uh, crimes against our Creator, but that we come into a certain agreement with Him about where we will be walking to. The prophet Amos in chapter 3, verse 3 says, how can two walk if they don't agree? Another translation puts it this way, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction Walking, of course, is not a static or stationary activity, right? There's movement, there's progress. Over time, if you're walking with God, you will not remain in the same place where you began. There is a forward movement, there is a certain progress, there's a direction and purpose to your travels. And we need to let God define our steps and determine our direction as we walk through life together with Him. And he does provide much guidance to us in his holy scriptures. And he does provide much guidance to us as well by his Holy Spirit. And as you walk steadily with him and as you trust in his goodness, as you trust in his guidance, there will be movement, there will be progress. It may seem slow at times, but you will not end up where you began. As you steadily walk with him, he will be changing you. You will be growing in grace. You will be growing in character. You will be growing in intimacy with the one who you are walking with. Every step you take in this life is leading you somewhere. The question is, who are you walking with? 
And where are you going? And who's deciding on that direction? Another thing we learn here about walking with God is that it requires not only a, a life of surrender to God, but it also requires a life of seeking after God. Walking with God involves pursuit. It involves intentionally drawing near to Him, believing that He exists, believing that He is not only a real God, but a rewarding God for those who seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us that. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, God says through his prophet, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And we know that Enoch sought after God with all of his heart. We know that he drew near to God because we're told that he did. And after all, think about this. It's not really possible to, to walk with someone in the first place, is it, without drawing near to them, without coming close to them, you're not really walking with someone if they're, if they're way out ahead of you or way back behind you or off to the side. No, if you're walking with someone you care about, if you're, if you're walking with a friend, you do so by getting right up next to them, don't you? Side by side, there's a closeness, there's an intimacy that comes when you walk with another person. It makes me think of many years ago and the, the walks I would take with my children when they were quite young walking together, them holding my hand tightly as we would venture out into the world together. I would talk to them, I would teach them, I would lead them, I would guide them along the way. And quite often they would look up at me, smile at me, beaming with affection for me. They could not get enough of me. They always wanted more of their dad. They thought I was some kind of uh, superhero who knew everything, who could do anything. Of course, it was only a matter of time before they figured things out, right? But at that age, they were always pursuing me. They were always seeking me. They trusted deeply that I would protect them. They knew that I was looking out for them. And without a doubt, they had more confidence in themselves when I was with them than when I was not. They knew I was their dad. They knew they were mine and always would be. But nevertheless, they always wanted more of dad. And I think that's one of the ways you know you're a Christian. It's one of the ways you know you're walking with God is that even though you, even though you know you have him, even though you know you're his, you still want more of him. A.W. Tozer says, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Tozer would go on and say this, Lord, I have tasted your goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I long to be filled with more longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory so that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up and come away. And then give me the grace to rise up and follow. That's interesting, isn't it? Tozer is essentially saying, God, I have experienced your goodness and it has made me very satisfied. But at the same time, it has made me more thirsty for you. So I'd like to ask you this morning, do you know anything about that? I hope that you do at, at some level. I suspect that you do at some level. I hope that's why you're here today, because you want more of him. That's why I'm here. 
That's the point and purpose of my life at this stage. We do indeed have him in the gospel. But I hope you're also thirsty for more of him. Verse 6 tells us that God rewards those who are thirsty. He rewards those who seek after him and walk with him by faith. We saw that, didn't we, in dramatic fashion with Enoch. He, he walked with God. He pleased God. He was rewarded by God by, by being taken up into the fullness of God's presence. And that is our greatest reward, isn't it? More of what we're seeking, more of God himself, more of God's personal presence, whether now or later or both. And so let's be diligent. He does promise to draw near to you as you draw near to him. James chapter 4, verse 8 tells us that. And as he draws near to you and as you get to know him and trust him more and more deeply, things will begin to change. Some people think to be a Christian, you study the doctrines, you go to church, they take you through a class, you add some more knowledge that you didn't have before, right? You didn't know much about Christianity before, now you, now you know more about it and you've decided to commit yourself to the principles that you've learned about it. But that's not at all what walking with God is about. Walking with God does include a certain set of propositions that one must believe, right? That Jesus lived the life that we could not live, that he died the death we deserved, and that he rose again so that we could once again walk in restored fellowship with our Creator. But at the same time, walking with God is also much more than merely intellectual belief. It has to become real at the level of the heart. It has to become real in a relational sense. This is why Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say Christianity is not primarily a teaching nor a philosophy, nor even a way of life. In the first instance, it is, before all, a relationship to a person. He's talking about coming to know God through the Scriptures, by the Holy Spirit, and having your relationship with Him become a deep and, and meaningful experience of the heart. That's what it means to walk with God, really. It's when your rational understanding of God and the gospel moves into your heart and begins to come alive in new ways. If you're truly walking with God, you don't just know things about him, rather you know him personally. But how does that work? How do you come to know him and walk with him in that sort of way? Well, I think you go to him, first of all, in the same sort of way you would approach and pursue uh, any relationship that was important to you by observing him, by studying him, by wanting to know what he likes and what he doesn't like, by understanding his character and his concerns, by spending time together in prayer, by getting to know him better through his revealed word, by asking questions of him and listening and responding. And so do you do that? How is that going? There was a British minister who lived about a century ago who was writing to a friend about his experience of knowing and walking with Christ. He said this in one of his letters, Recently I've been having very productive times in prayer. Usually once a week and sometimes every day, a pressure of his great love comes down around my heart 
in such measures as makes my whole being groan beneath the joy. He has unlocked every part of my being and filled and flooded them with the light and the love of his presence. It's one thing to believe in God and to believe that he loves you in a general kind of way. It's another thing to have his love come down upon you and to fill you and to flood your soul. Do you ever sense his presence coming down upon you like that? Now, I do know we are all on unique journeys with him, to be sure. God works in different ways at different times in different uh, people. There is no doubt about that. But knowing him and experiencing him, not just in our heads, but with our hearts, should be happening at some level in each and every Christian as you seek him and as you draw near to him. I think that's what it means in many ways to walk with God. You know you can approach him and deal with him on a, on a personal basis as a friend who is by your side supporting you rather than as some sort of distant and detached deity. And so you go to him as a person. You approach him in prayer by talking to him and listening. You approach him in the scriptures expecting to interact with him. You struggle with things in the middle of the day and you sense that he's with you. You sense his presence. You sense his, his grace and his guidance in real time. You know you're not alone. Now, it's possible at this moment that you either know exactly what I'm talking about in all this or you may think I'm talking kind of crazy and mystical right now. And I got to tell you, for most of my life, what I just said would have sounded like crazy talk to me. I would hear people talking about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And I wasn't sure what to make of it. I certainly wasn't really buying it. Mostly I just wanted those types of people to kind of tone it down a bit about Jesus. And I do know that God has a good sense of humor because I'm quite certain now that some of the people I come across in my life would also like me to kind of tone it down a bit about Jesus. Friends, Jesus broke into my life abruptly and unexpectedly in a way that I did not know was possible. And he said to me in no uncertain terms, you are coming with me, you're going to walk with me from now on. Everything I knew about Jesus in my head came alive in my heart, and my life has not been the same since. He showed me what it means to know him and to, to be known by him. And I've been walking with him ever since. I think one of the clearest ways to know that you're walking with him is that you want to keep walking with him. You don't want that walk to ever end. And by God's grace in the gospel, it doesn't have to. And if you're walking with him, you know he can be trusted. You know you can take anything to him. Nothing needs to be held back. He knows it all anyway, right? That's one of the reasons I love King David and the many psalms that he wrote. We get to see there a truly open and honest walk with God on display in the pages of the Bible to teach us and to encourage us that we too can be real with God and, and honest with God as we walk with him and as, as we talk with him. One moment you may find David pleading for more of God, like in Psalm 63 where he says, uh, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. 
My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now that there is not David saying, God, help me out in my life. Make me a better guy. Fix my situation. Rather, that is a yearning from the depths of his being for more of God and his presence. One thing that's really interesting is that you will find David praising God profusely in the, in the Psalms again and again. God, you are good. God, you are gracious. God, you are beautiful. But then quite literally on the very next page, you'll find David saying, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Don't do this. Now there's a guy we can relate to, right? A guy who's struggling and straining, walking out the highs and the lows of life with God, taking every bit of it to him personally and honestly in light of the relationship they shared with one another. That's what it means to, to walk with God on this journey of life through the world that is as we await the world to come. And as we wait, let's be thirsty for him together. We need this. We need him in every way. Let's surrender to him daily. Let's seek after him continually. Let's draw near to him with all of our hearts. Let's walk with him. Let's confide in him. Let's trust him together. And would we never forget or take for granted why we're able to do these things in the first place? As we've seen this morning, in the earliest of days, God's grace was put on display in Genesis chapter 5 as this obscure character named Enoch in the midst of an evil and wicked generation was spared God's judgment. He was spared the sting of death and he was ushered into God's glorious presence all by faith. And thanks be to God that in these present days of ours that God's grace has shown all the more brightly in the person and work of Jesus so that in the midst of this evil and wicked generation, you and I too have been spared God's judgment and spared the sting of death as we look forward to being ushered into God's glorious presence all by faith in Christ our Savior and our walking partner and our friend. Let's pray. God, thank you for your scriptures and for how you surprise us at times in them. Thank you for how you use your scriptures to remind us of your, your un, unchanging character, of your unending grace. Thank you that you draw near to us as we draw near to you. Thank you that you reward those who seek you with the greatest gift of all, and that is you and your personal presence with us as we walk through this life with you and for you. God, would you give us grace to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.